I invite you to take your Bibles with me this morning and turn to the book of 1 Kings. That's just to the left of 2 Kings. In the Old Testament, 1 Kings chapter 18 is where we will be this morning. As you may remember, we started on the 2nd of January a new series called The Story. And we have been following the activity of God from the early chapters of Genesis, and now we have arrived in 1 Kings chapter 18. We've been following the activity of God as God seeks to engage with humanity and seeks to engage in a redemptive, loving way to reconcile humanity to himself. And this morning we come to a particularly fascinating chapter in 1 Kings chapter 18, because we find here the rise of the prophet Elijah. And Elijah has appeared on the scene during the reign of King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. And we come to 1 Kings chapter 18 with the awareness that the people of Israel are in need of a disruptive experience. They're in need of an experience that comes to them and speaks to them and grabs their attention. God had warned Israel that their desire for a king would cause great problems for them and not be all that they had hoped for. Their first king, Saul, had started well and ended poorly. God had tried to tell them that. Their second king, David, started well, had moral failure, ethical failure, and was confronted by the prophet Nathan and repented. But even after that moment, David's reign was still troubled. His family was troubled. Solomon follows David and Solomon's reign opens with a right request for wisdom. Solomon produces the first temple in Jerusalem. But Solomon begins his own moral decline when in defiance of the law of God, he marries wives of women from all other countries and he imports their idols and their gods. And around the temple of Jerusalem, the temple of God, Solomon allowed there to be temples built to other gods. And Solomon's reign ends poorly. And so it is as we make our way through the book of 1 Kings from Solomon through the other kings, we arrive in chapter 18 to the reign of Ahab. It's into this context in which these kings have allowed the worship of other gods that Elijah appears on the scene. Elijah was God's prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. His story is one of the most intriguing stories in scripture. He was a miracle worker. He raised the dead, called down fire from heaven, brought a three-year drought, called for rain, and God brought the rain. And when he left this life, he went out in a blaze of glory. God took him to heaven in a fiery chariot. chariot. And when Elijah appears on the scene here in 1 Kings chapter 18, Ahab was the king of Israel at the time, and he was a wicked king. He had turned the hearts of the people from God to worship the false god Baal. 
And it says in 1 Kings 16, 30, and Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. So I invite you to take your Bible, to follow along. And let's read 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 16 through 24. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to come and meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So I have sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said, nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am only one of the Lord's, I'm the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophet choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood and not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people said, what you say is good. You may remember the rest of this story. How the prophets of Baal set up their altar and they cut up the bull and they put it on the fire, on the, on the altar. And Elijah did the same on the altar he had created and then Elijah had his assistants come and they poured water on it several times and they had built a moat around it to make sure the water was preserved, all in an attempt to demonstrate to the people that he was going to do everything he could to make sure that nothing that they were about to see could be conjured up by him. And in the soaking water of what had been poured over the sacrifice prepared by Elijah, Elijah calls on the name of the Lord in the midst of the great cacophony of 450 prophets. Can you imagine that scene? 450 prophets, not too far away, within sight of the people of Israel. And they're chanting and they're doing all they can to call fire down from Baal upon their sacrifice. And Elijah calls on the Lord God, the living God, to bring fire down on the sacrifice. And can you imagine what went through that group of people when the fire fell? Can you imagine what took place in that moment, that disruptive moment that was designed to challenge all of that, what they believed and all they were practicing in their culture at the time? And God came. And so it is that in those moments, there is a disruptive experience. And Elijah calls for the destruction of Baal and all of the images and the prophets. It is a cleansing act. And the people of God and their voice come then 
and gather around the living God. It is a remarkable story, full of the redemptive activity of God to call the people of Israel to return to their creator and redeemer. It is a remarkable display of power. It makes for great imagery and storytelling, and it makes for a great witness to the true living God. This passage, though, gives us a window into the heart and voice of God as expressed through a series of prophets raised up by God to counter the frequent failure of the kings which had been so desperately desired by Israel. And Elijah is among the best known and revered of the prophets and serves as a perfect illustration of the biblical role of the prophet that serves as an expression of God's provision for the people of God. So this morning what I want to do is, is not spend so much time dwelling upon the fire and the sacrifice, but looking perhaps, peeling back the veil a little bit and look at the role of the prophet. Because the prophet is provision. The prophet is God's loving provision even though it creates discomfort. Every once in a while the people of God in that day and in this day need to be made uncomfortable. Are we okay with that? The reason is that the human dynamic that allowed Israel and the kings of Israel to accommodate these other idols and other forms of worship is still active in and among us today. Are we still okay? The reason is we are all birthed in that space of creation with that inherited tendency to sin. And the reason is that we are left with that and the saving grace of Jesus Christ and God comes and begins to deal with the past activity of that and the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit continues that work in us, continuing to refine us, continuing to help us learn how to follow God. And that learning goes on all of our lives. That learning gets cramped in moments when we begin to say, okay, I think I've about made it. I have arrived spiritually. I'm now mature and I can handle whatever needs to be handled in life. That's the moment at which the creeping darkness begins to creep a little more. Because that is an expression, it's an expression of a loss of humility in us. That happens not only individually, it also happens collectively. For we can gather up great symbols of what we have done collectively and allow them to become the reminder that all is okay. And we can seek then to preserve those things and our efforts become about preservation and we turn inward and the creeping darkness creeps just a little more. With the help of some friends of mine who become friends through their writings, I wanna take a moment and comment on seven roles of a prophet. And it might make us uncomfortable. 
But if we're humble before God, let the Holy Spirit speak to us. The first role of the prophet was to speak on God's behalf. In the King James Version of the Old Testament, it often begins with the prophet's statement, says, goes something like this, thus saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. That sentence is the mark of the prophet because it says, I am bringing to you the message of the Lord and it has more authority than the message of the king. It has more authority in your life than whatever it is you value, whatever it is you're worshiping. And so listen to it, hear it, embrace it, receive it. And as you go through the rest of the Old Testament, there are times in which the prophets are vilified and they're rejected and they're pushed away because people are resistant to the voice of the Lord and the word of the Lord. The second role of the prophet was to call out idolatry and injustice. And in this case with Elijah and King Ahab, it was the idolatry that becomes so prevalent, not just the presence of the golden calves and other idols, but the inherent tendency to become dependent upon leader, human leadership as more authoritative than the leadership of the Spirit of God. To embrace the promises of human leadership that are rarely delivered, by the way. It's getting real quiet in here. It's okay, and I'm okay. But the people of Israel had become dependent upon the king as authoritative for matters of, matters of moral conviction, biblical understanding, and the kings had failed them time and time and time again. And you say, that was then and this is now, but guess what? This now is a lot like that then. That's not a political statement. I really don't care what political party you belong to, if you're independent, libertarian, Republican, Democrat, or any other stripe. The tendency to believe and trust is the same across the entire spectrum. And so I'm speaking to the human tendency to trust human authoritative figures and sometimes even pastors who can lead people down a path, an unfortunate and destructive path. The third role of the Old Testament prophet was to preserve the identity of Israel as the people of God. To preserve the identity of Israel as the people of God. Israel by covenant and by the redemptive actions of God were to be the people of God of Yahweh. They were to be monotheistic. They were to worship the one and only living God, setting them apart from all of the other countries around them all of the other cultures around them. And this role of the prophet raises the question, whose are we and who is shaping our identities as followers of Christ? The fourth role of the prophet was to help the people of Israel avoid amnesia. Anyone forgetful? 
in this crowd? Don't ask my wife. But the history of human created people throughout the scripture is that a case of amnesia settles in. Even as we read the story of the people in Israel wandering in the desert for 40 years, how often did we see expressions of amnesia? They had been delivered out of Egypt with great wonders. They had taken great wealth with them. They had seen the effect of the Passover as they had marked the blood on the lentil of their door and on the doorposts and the angel of death had passed over them and they had that memory and they walked out of Egypt. They came to the Red Sea. The Red Sea parts, not just because it parts, it parts when it needed to part. That's the miracle, it's the timing. Doesn't matter if the Red Sea parts at the wrong time. There's no miracle in that. And they walk across on dry land and they're safe from Pharaoh and the armies that follow them. And God delivers them time and time again. God leads them with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. God's presence is visible all the time. And what do they do? They suffer amnesia and they complain. They complain about the water. They complain about the quail. They complain about the manna. They complain about Moses. They had a serial case of the wah, wah, wah. But think about that, friends. Think about that. Spiritual amnesia, it was not just a problem in Israel, it's a problem across history. And it lurks among the faithful even today. We need to sing songs, hymns, choruses like we did this morning You've always been faithful because of that tendency toward human amnesia, spiritual amnesia. When the amnesia sets in among a community of faith, the authority of God is in question and it becomes replaced by other forms of thinking, some of which can even be defined as honorable. But not best. The fifth role of the prophet is to push back the creeping darkness. The people of Israel just didn't arrive one day at worshiping Baal, that had crept in over time. The various kings, you can read all the stories of the kings through 1 Kings, every king in 1 Kings turns out poorly. They fail. Get into 2 Kings, there are a handful of good kings in 2 Kings. You get toward the end of 2 Kings, you get to Josiah. Josiah is a good king, a king following God, a king who leads the nation of Israel in repentance. But what happens is this creeping darkness of conformity, this creeping darkness of this is now popular or it's acceptable or everyone is doing it. or it becomes part of the common culture and it creeps its way and we bring those tendencies and those 
experiences and those practices even into the community of faith and we can embrace them and it creeps. Creeping darkness sometimes looks like self-preservation. Creeping darkness looks like I want my way. Creeping darkness looks like don't talk to me, I don't want to hear it. Creeping darkness looks like scolding when someone says the darkness is creeping in and someone tries to counter that and they say, oh, you scolded me. Well, maybe if we feel scolded, maybe it's the work of the Holy Spirit wanting to say something to us. Because those who push back on the creeping darkness are saying the creeping darkness is coming and it's creeping on us and we need to pay attention to it. And we say, no, 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 the, there's still a little light left. We're okay. One scholar suggested that Solomon allowed the building of other temples to other gods below and around the temple of God so that it would, it would look like they were subservient to the other God, to the true God. But in fact, what really happened was they became acceptable. They became present. And at the end of his reign, Solomon resembled Pharaoh more than he did David. The next role of the prophet is to evoke a consciousness as an alternative to the dominant culture. Let's go back in the story of God for a moment. If we go back to Moses, Moses fulfilled the role of prophet in speaking to Pharaoh because he challenged the status quo of Pharaoh's Egypt with the innovative idea of an Israel that would be led by Yahweh rather than the imperial reality of Pharaoh. Remember how Pharaoh responded with great acceptance when Moses and Aaron came? And Moses said, let my people go so that they can worship the living God in the desert. And Pharaoh said, absolutely, great idea, go ahead. No, he didn't, did he? Some of you are suffering from that lost hour last night. And Pharaoh says, why should I do that? I have no idea who this God is you're talking about. And Moses continues to go back and speak and demand the release of the people of Israel and Pharaoh is so enmeshed in his own imperial reality that he has no capacity to hear, to see, even in the face of the series of plagues. And at times he says, okay, I've had enough. And then he changes his mind. Until it costs him the firstborn. And the prophet and Moses in the role of prophet creates a conscious awareness that there is an alternative to the dominant culture. A couple of weeks ago, I called us to a season of reflection. I've invited us to read the book Growing Young and subsequent book 
by Rachel Held Evans, Searching for Sunday. Because we need to evoke a consciousness of an alternative future than the one that exists currently here among us. Often people come to me and say, where are our young people? Where are our young adults? Where are our young families? You want to know where they are? They're telling us something. They are saying something to us. And whether or not they return will be entirely dependent on whether or not we listen to what they will say to us and the alternative culture and consciousness they will evoke in us if we will listen to them. That's a really disturbing reality. And friends, it's not simply about styles of music for them. It is not. And so we're going to read. And, and if you've gotten an email from me, if you've talked to me that you want one of those books, Growing Young, I have a box of them right down here. They're $500 a piece. <laughs> no, they're not. I'm teasing you. You know I'm teasing you. But I have some here, and you can come and pick one up this morning. And others have been writing me and telling me, calling me and say, hey, I'm, I've got the book. It's on my Kindle. I'm reading it. Because there is a sense among us that we do care, and we do want to understand, and we do want to know, and we do want to grow. Because we do want them among us. Amen? And many of us are willing to do what's necessary to make that happen, even if it means changing the way we think, changing the way we act, changing the way we engage with our community, changing the way we get outside of ourselves. And in that activity, there is hope for us. You see, a book like Growing Young, and I will tell you, if you pick up Rachel Held Evans' book, Searching for Sunday, it will make you exceedingly uncomfortable because it is a prophetic voice. It will disturb you in your spirit. But what they are saying to us is the community that exists is not sufficient for us anymore. We seek a different kind of community. We seek a community that wants to do something different than what's been done. And it's not a critique of everything, but it's a critique of some things. So the question that arises out of this, what do we need to know? How do we listen to God on this matter? For let me just say this to us. We just sang that song, You've Always Been Faithful. Do you believe that to be true in this matter? Would God be faithful in leading us into a new imagined consciousness and future if we would listen to the young among us, to the young that have left us, and reimagine how we are to engage with the world and how we are to engage with the community, how we are to engage with our neighbors? You see, the prophet, the prophetic voice is God's provision to us 
and we should not be afraid of it. For the role of the prophet was to critique so that out of the critique, new energy and imagination could arise. The prophet was the human voice of the imagination of God. The prophet was to speak of what was not so, so that what God intended could be real and lived out and cared for. It's part of the reason we're talking about celebrate recovery. And I'm beginning to hear from some of you, your stories, your family stories. My family has a story. But for too long we have covered those stories up and we have hidden them behind the curtains of our lives rather than living them transparently here among the body of believers who, by the way, ought to be the people who come alongside and love us and care for us and love our family back into the kingdom because we have a capacity to love in the messy times. And one of the great themes that arises out of the story of God from Genesis chapter 2 until Kings 18 is that God engages in the messy space. That God speaks in a messy space. That God speaks hope in a messy space. And God speaks of a new future in a messy space. So I just say to you, let's be a messy church. Because every one of us, probably every one of us in this room have some aspect within our families that's in a messy space somewhere. Some of us have prayed for years, decades even for children and nieces and nephews and grandchildren and it's messy. And so God calls us into that space and that extends an outward into the places of human suffering and how we will serve. And yes, we have helping hands. And last, this last week, they distributed food to almost 380 families. This morning, our good folks were at church in the park. I think church in the park's a great ministry. And it's gone on for almost as many years as I've been alive which only makes me about 30. But let me stretch you a little bit. Church in the park becomes even more godlike when those people that are served there sit among us here and we have relationship with them and we love them as we love one another. That's when we will know we have come to be in the kingdom of God in a way that invites the kingdom of God into and not just outside of. You okay? So I wouldn't know what to say. I wouldn't know what to do. You know what? You just learn that like you learned everything else in life. You just start. And you love And there's some things you choose to ignore. They don't look like me. They don't dress like me. They don't smell like me. They don't, it does not matter. All of those things are surface things. The heart of those people is as much in need of love as your own heart is.
Well, the rest of the story about Elijah continues because prophets are not popular. They don't win votes of popularity. And as you read down through the rest of 18 and 19, guess what happens? Ahab's wife sets out after Elijah with her army to chase him down and rid the world of his disruptive voice. And Elijah escapes and he goes away and enters into a season of depression and hides out. You see, the prophets are human too. And God says, I'm here. Maybe not in the way you expect, but I'm here, Elijah. From Ahab's response to Elijah's presence in verse 17, when he asked Elijah, is that you, you troubler of Israel? <laughs> Elijah said, I didn't cause trouble in Israel. You and your family did. Let's take a moment to look beyond Elijah. Let's move into the Gospels. The roles of the prophet were evident in the life of Jesus. You follow the life of Jesus, you can go down and, and you can find all seven of those things I mentioned in the life of Jesus. Jesus was disruptive. He was upsetting things. He was challenging things. He evoked the consciousness of a new imagination of a new future. And then moving even further along in John chapter 14 through 16, Jesus promises the Holy Spirit, a one who walks alongside, the advocate for us, the paraclete, the presence of one who will teach, remind, guide us into truth, judge and convict of sin, all of which are Old Testament roles of the prophet. Friends, let me just say this. The gift of the Holy Spirit fills the role of the prophet in the New Testament for us. If we listen. God's provision of a corrective voice in our lives is a gift rather than a threat. When the Holy Spirit speaks to us, it is the God of creation speaking to us. It is the God of creation seeking to create something new in us. And when the God of creation comes through the voice of the Holy Spirit and seeks to transform even a moment, even a time, even part of our lives, we should say, thanks be to God for God is active and present in my life so that I might be part of the kingdom of God at hand. It also is a reflection that the God of the resurrection is keeping covenant with us in the same way he kept covenant with Abraham and Isaac and David and all of the others. The role of the prophetic voice in the form of Old Testament scripture, New Testament teaching of Jesus, the voice of the Holy Spirit, and even the voices of the young serve as critique are gifts to us, for each of them bring with them the possibilities of a new imagination. It is my practice to stop by and stick my head in the back of Women in the Word on Tuesday. 
morning. There's a lot of energy in that room. I love the energy in that room. And I just stop in and stand in the back for a moment. This last week I stood and stand, stood in the back for a moment and the speaker that morning said biblical justice occurs when people are lifted out of shame. That's pretty good preaching. Boy, if we could somehow embrace that and say, we'd like to be a faith, a community of faith that lifts people out of shame, that'd be a good thing to be known for. Don't get distracted by the word justice. Some of y'all get a little tight over that word. Don't do that. If you get tight over that word, you miss out on a lot of the prophetic voice of God because it's an entirely inherently biblical concept. This message comes to us right in the middle of the season of Lent. Because what Ahab did was a very Lenten thing. It was a call to return. It was a call to reflect. It was a call to repent. It was a call to embrace the voice of God. And so as we began with Ash Sunday and Lee Chap Ash Wednesday and Lee Chapel, and we made that opportunity available to stop and reflect and listen and pray and repent and return. I would encourage us to let that continue throughout this time and this season. We're going to put on the screen a prayer that Henry Nouwen wrote, a Lenten prayer. And I'm going to read it to us. And if you're so inclined, you're welcome to read it along with me. If you're not so inclined, it's okay. It's in your worship folder. I put it in there intentionally because you'll be able to take it with you. And here's the prayer that he wrote. The Lenten season begins. It is a time to be with you, Lord, in a special way. A time to pray, a time to fast, and thus to follow you on your way to Jerusalem, to Golgotha, and to the final victory over death. I am still so divided. I truly want to follow you, but I also want to follow my own desires and lend an ear to the voices that speak about prestige and success and pleasure and power and influence. Help me to become deaf to these voices and more attentive to your voice, which calls me to choose the narrow road of life. I know that Lent is going to be a very hard time for me. The choice for your way has to be made every moment of my life. I have to choose thoughts that are your thoughts, words that are your words, and actions that are your actions. There are not times or places without choices, and I know how deeply I resist choosing you. Please, Lord, be with me at every moment and in every place. Give me the strength and the courage to live this season faithfully so that when Easter comes, I will be able to taste with joy the new life that you have prepared for me. Amen. Henry Nouwen was a Catholic. Henry Nouwen was a believer. He was a man of God, a person of God. And what is in his prayer isn't that he's 
concerned about losing his salvation. What is in his prayer is this profound humility that invites the Holy Spirit to come and to speak and to examine and to shape. You may remember that some months ago in a message I said, if there's one thing I would pray for us, it would be for humility. And I would pray for us in this Lenten season that we could embrace the humility that's voiced in this prayer. And so I invite you to take it. I invite you to use it. I invite you to rewrite it and make it your own. But most of all, I invite us to embrace this sense of humility that says, oh God, come. Push back the darkness that may be creeping in on me that I don't even recognize. Evoke in me a consciousness of a new imagination for my life, for the community of faith that I'm a part of, so that we might be, I might be the person, oh God, that you would desire me to be. And let me live out the prayer that I pray every Sunday morning. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That prayer is a very prophetic prayer, by the way. It's not just meant to be recited. It is meant to be lived out and to challenge us. Well, I've gone way too long. Somebody's going to come and tell me I preached too long this morning. Yeah, thank you. Kim will be the first right here. That's why she sits down front. She makes a bee t- beeline over here. <laughs> That's not true. Thank you. Thank you, Ryan. I hope you get a sense that I feel this deeply. Because the last thing I want is for the creeping darkness to overtake us and blind us and eliminate us. So allow the voice of the Holy Spirit to be the voice of God's imagination in your life in this Lenten season. Let's stand together. Would you receive this benediction? We thank you, loving God, that we have gathered in your presence and shared in worship. Now may we go forth into the world confident that we are your children, knowing that you have called us by name. In our daily life, we may we align ourselves with your will, seeking direction to follow the plans you have for us, which give us a hope and a future in Jesus Christ. And may we have patience in the waiting of this Lenten season. Amen.